Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. One second, just going to back up a quarter. Tyler, are you feeling all right? Strength level is fine. I played basketball before. I worked all day. Occasionally, I have coughing fits, and my voice mm-hmm. is not quite full mellifluous projection. But yeah, my life has not changed. I'm not sick sick. Okay. Tyler, we, uh, we, need, we need to play basketball at, at some point. Just, uh, yes. just a game of horse or something. Yes. You know, I tore both of my rotator cuffs, so we need to limit the range on horse. But if you're willing to do that, I'm game. Oh, absolutely. I'm a really good three-point shooter, and now I just can't do it, period. <laughs> what, what was your game like? Like, pick an NBA player that, was, that manifested your game. I don't know, just some guy who was kicked out of the D-League. Like, <laughs> I don't really play. I just shoot and run around. Yeah. How long ago did you tear your rotator cuff? Oh, like four years ago. It was okay. only painful briefly. And it hasn't changed my life. I can't reach for a really tall shelf and I can't shoot a three-point shot. Otherwise, I don't notice it. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with very special co-host, Jasmine Wang. Jasmine is an Emergent Ventures winner. And of course, we're here with a repeat guest and fan favorite uh, and friend of the firm, Tyler Cowan. Uh, Jasmine and Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Very Thank happy to be there. here. So so uh, I'll start us off. Uh, Tyler, uh, one thing you've been thinking a lot about is is talent, uh, identifying talent, uh, assessing talent. What, what's one or, or two non-obvious things you've learned about talent identification or, or, or talent uh, assessment? Well, non-obvious is a tricky phrase. Obvious to whom? I think IQ is overrated, especially by smart people. And I think stamina is highly valuable. Just how long a person will persist at something. Uh, to some people, those are obvious truths. So... But I, I think to smart people in particular, it's not obvious to them that they overrate smarts. Well, in you, general, we all over, tend to overrate people who are like ourselves. So it's efficient to seek out people like you for relationships, right? So we have that tendency and we carry it over into too many other areas. But for your emergent fellows, sometimes that you only have you know, a little bit of time to, to, to meet them and same with venture capital. How, how do you assess stamina? What do you look for? What, what are false positives? Uh, you look at what they've done and how they talk about what they've done and what they want to do, but it's one of the hardest things to assess. Partly that's why it's underrated, right? And uh, IQ, which is overrated, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy to assess, but you can give a person a test, right? And you have a number and it might be an imperfect number, but you've got something. So, um, so Tyler, you've been running Emergent Ventures for over a year now. Yes. Um, are there any Emergent Ventures winners that you'd like to highlight who you think are particularly underrated? Well, can I say you? Oh, so I think thanks so much, Tyler. <laughs> your degree of curiosity is extreme, and your sensitivity to subtleness is also like A double plus. So in people, I look for them having some traits, even if they don't appear to be practical, where the person is like A plus, A double plus, and you seem to have at least two, and I have genuinely no idea what you will do, but that's why we made a bet on you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tyler, and I hope I hope to figure that out also. 
That was very kind. Thank you. I had dinner with David <laughs> Carell a few nights ago, so I'll show I'm captive of recency bias. David is going to revolutionize the world of online writing. He's already making a very good income with his company. I think what he's doing, uh, I mean, it's more than has potential. It's succeeding. David's ability to kind of grasp what he needs to do and then do it also with stamina, I think is just excellent. I think David is pretty exemplary of some similar characteristics I've noticed among EV winners. Um, a lot of the winners are like quite similar to you. They're polymaths, they're internet savvy, they learn in public. Um, for people who don't have those traits, what would you say to them? You mean if they're not polymaths, they're not curious? Mm-hmm. Like generally, do you think this is like a dominant strategy given today's information ecosystem? Uh, no, I don't. I think people who are just very good at specializing and not so curious can do very well or better. Maybe Emergent Ventures is not the right place for them. Maybe I, like other talent evaluators, are in a sense looking too much for people like myself. So I come to Emergent Ventures and I think, oh, I'm going to pick all these different people. And we meet for our event. And it turns out everyone gets along great. And that's wonderful. It feels good. But part of me is kind of disappointed. It's like if they all get along, maybe I didn't diversify well enough. But then the other part of me, the economist, kicks in and he says, you know, Tyler, it's not your job to diversify. It's your job to specialize. And to specialize in generalists who are curious is what you should do and let the whole ecosystem, you know, have a portfolio, but not you. Pick what you're good at figuring out. So I ended up going away happy after running through those mental permutations. After that, that yeah, that makes sense. After that unconference, um, was there anything that you were surprised by meeting everyone in the same place for the first time? Uh, how well they all got along. And although they're very different, like age, race, country, gender, whatever, uh, they seemed kind of the same in a way, just curious and intense and passionate. To me, that was fun. But again, you have to ask, like, are you betting too heavily on that? And I say full steam ahead, double down. Let's talk about progress studies. So you and Patrick made the case um, for a new Collison, science. Of, just for those who Patrick don't know, Collison yes. made the case for a new science of progress in the Atlantic. Um, and some academics responded that progress has been an object of study for centuries. Um, you responded saying a ton of bricks do not make a house. So what bricks do you think are most important to the project of progress? And how might they be brought together to make a house? Well, I would start with this point. There's plenty of work already in virtually all fields, highly relevant to progress studies, but it doesn't have high enough status. So if I think of my own field, economics, there's plenty of books and articles on the Industrial Revolution, and those people are doing progress studies. That's wonderful. But if you ask, is it taught in a typical graduate sequence? The answer is no. Is it a relatively high status field? The answer is no. So part of the program here is to take what's already being done, not devalue it and say, oh, there's hardly any of it, but to raise it in status because it's much more important than we realize. Uh, but that said, I do think there are areas that people don't pay close enough attention to. Just to give you a super simple example, I've been teaching now for about 30 years, and I've never had an employer come to me with data about how I ought to teach better. There's a huge literature out there on education, which uses a lot of data, but remarkably little that is both using, you know, contemporary econometric tools, really good data, careful RCTs or natural experiments, and that it's integrated into the process of helping people teach better. 
and we spend so much on higher education and we're not even trying to do better at making better teachers. That would be an example of something we should do more of. But again, there's plenty of stuff out there, plenty of bricks, not really the right kind of house. Right. So would you say a good summary might be there's a lot of work out there that's not high status or hasn't been applied? Do you think there's low-hanging academic fruit to be taken? Like, do you think there are still big unanswered questions? Absolutely. So what shapes economic growth? We have at best a so-so understanding of that. The amount of time spent teaching that at undergraduate, graduate levels, I would increase by, say, 5x. I would have everyone do economic history, know about the Industrial Revolution, the East Asian economic miracles. And again, these are just like another topic under the status quo. I would make them really quite central to education. Why, why do you think progress studies hasn't arisen as a field of study in the past? And I guess relatedly, do you think that traditional academic fields, as they're currently demarcated, they are largely the result of chance or some other factor? Well, I think we've had progress studies in the past. You know, in the 18th century, Condorcet wrote a whole book on progress studies. In the 19th century, Herbert Spencer organized a lot of his work around a related idea, not with the same name, John Stuart Mill as well. So it's a, it's a longstanding Western tradition. I think we've lost sight of it somewhat as we've had so much specialization. And it seems to me the fields we have now, we simply inherit from the past. So if you have economists like Steve Levitt write articles on what babies' names do people choose, and sociologists write articles on the same topic, what's really the difference there? A lot of it is just their social science and their data analysis, and we're carving it up in funny, arbitrary ways just because we've inherited that. Why is it? I'm curious. Why is it that it's been a mostly Western tradition? Do you think? I simply know less about Eastern thought, so I'm not denying that, say, earlier Chinese thinkers may have had related ideas. I would just say I don't know. But in the Western tradition, I absolutely know that plenty of people had, most prominently in the 18th century. Adam Smith also, very much in the same vein. David Hume, you know, his famous essay, Are the Moderns Exceeding the Achievements of the Ancients? Which in the 18th century was not obvious. You'd go to Rome, you'd see the Pantheon. It would be, oh my goodness, this is incredible. You'd go back to where you'd live and it looked awful. And you thought, gee, we still have not gotten there yet. Uh, 2020, it's different. But uh, that's really where progress studies springs from, as far as I know, is a bit the Renaissance and then the idea of flowering in the 18th century. Got it. Sometimes I use the mental model of evolution to think about the life and death of academic fields. I'm curious what you think about that model, like if that's a useful mental model and if it is, um, what evolutionary pressures think academia is subject to that people operating outside of the academic system might not be aware of? Well, this is my life, of course, but how many majors you can recruit for your area? You know, <laughs> 78%, I think, of students in the U.S. higher ed system go to state public schools, which are mostly tuition-driven, not driven by donations the way Harvard might be. So your area has to be able to recruit majors or you lose slots. That's by far the most powerful force. I don't think it's you know necessarily efficient or even moral. Uh, I think the way we have these fields and disciplines carved up is in a way ridiculous, but I don't want to fight that battle. I would just you know let that be 
and just try to work on improving the substance in the research of particular individuals. I don't want to have some fight about who gets to be called what and you put economics with the humanities, with the sciences, or what's in what school, who's in the public policy department. That all, that's, that all matters, but I'm deliberately leaving that all out of my uh, quests. You have made some claims about what should change about the academic system, though. For example, that we should get rid of tenure. Um, what's your case there? Well, I would reword that a little. I think we should do mm. many more experimentations with getting rid of tenure or modifying tenure. Uh, the whole point of tenure was supposed to be it protects professorial free speech. That's a noble end. But there's now so, so, so many complaints from academia. The professors de facto don't have the free speech rights they used to. So something there is wrong with tenure. Tenure limits flexibility. It's terrible for women who are on a typical childbearing schedule, so to speak. If you say want to have children when you're 30, 31, that's exactly the worst possible time for trying to get tenure. So, again, I don't have a one-size-fits-all solution, but there's just so many schools that do things the exact same way. We have federalism. We have thousands of colleges and universities, hundreds of them pretty good, and we need to be experimenting much, much, much more with tenure and see what works. Are there other things in the academic system that you would want to tune and experiment with? Well, I think people should be rewarded more for communicating with the general public. Currently, it depends on the school, but that can count for nothing or even be perceived as a negative. Uh, I would change that. And uh, I think the variance of the pay scale should go up. So productive people should be paid more and many other people paid less. Have it be more like the private sector. Mm -hmm. Those would be two simple examples. Uh, I think more of education should be online. I'm not an online utopian. Maybe it's only, say, 20% of the sector. But right now, let's say the top 100 schools, it is not at 20%, and it can be, should be, and probably will be. Let's get there quicker and in a better way. So there should be a good online class that anyone can take on any major topic, and right now there isn't. That, to me, is just criminal. Yeah. I should know, and I've actually worked on this. Alex Tabarrok and I have created an online economics class in use now at George Mason, uh, which I am teaching, if teaching is the right word. And he taught last semester, and it got very high evaluations, and it's been a big success. So just to, you know, be a bit of a doer here, while I'm speaking to a community of doers, uh, on this, I have been a doer. My view is that the, the unbundling of the university is, uh, is, is threefold. It's education, network, and credential. And education is, is happened. Yes starting to happen. Network is starting to happen too with Emergent Fellows and, and YC and Village and On Deck and other things, other networks, Pioneer. Uh, and it, it's the credentials sort of the last to, uh, last to fall. What, it's odd that reason? that's the last because you would think that should be the easiest, but right. it's not. And it gets back to the talent identification point. How good are our universities at identifying talent? I think they're not very good, uh, but the alternative mechanisms are not very good either. There's a study, it has very good data. It tries to predict who drops out of West Point, right? It's a very simple yes-no thing. You drop out, you don't drop out. With very good data, we can explain, I think, 4% of the variation who drops out. And that's pretty astonishing. That's like, not that good if we're at 4%. We can do better. So, so if you were trying we to- do better. You are doing better, right? Yes. If, if you were trying to disrupt Harvard, would your approach look something like Lambda? Would it look something like Emergent Fellows or Pioneer or- 
you know, I'm big fans of Lambda, Emergent Ventures, yep. Pioneer, Village Global, but I don't think any of them are disrupting Harvard. I don't think Harvard will be disrupted. I'd like to see Harvard evolve in a number of directions we've just been talking about. But there's such stickiness at the top in higher ed. Uh, it's just like, you know, there's going to be two parties, Republican and Democrat, for a long, long time. And if you want to change things, you should hope to influence those parties rather than start a third one. So, and I think Harvard is a bit like that. So 30 years from now, most talented people will still be going to Stanford or Harvard, most likely? And they, Yes, they might drop out. Uh, but even just to go for a year is, I think, very valuable. Like the Collisons, they went to Harvard and MIT. Uh, I forget exactly how long, but, you know, not even three years, maybe a year or two. And then they dropped out. Uh, for most people, it doesn't make sense to not go at all. Because yeah. you are learning something about the variation in the world of high status people. Yeah. Let, let's, uh, let, let's, let's talk about progress. I'm curious what you think, to the extent that you think, uh, think about moral progress. In Stubborn Attachments, you sort of advocate for the common sense morality. Could you see uh, the, uh, the progress uh, movement, uh, progress studies movement, introducing a sort of moral progress, i.e. morality as a technology that uh, updates that common sense morality or two-thirds utilitarianism, as you, as you describe it? Uh, I hope people, you know, come around to better moral views, but I'm a little suspicious of the notion of moral progress. I guess I think you get the most of it when you feel you don't have very much. So the kind of self-congratulatory sense of moral progress or the people I meet who are rationalists or EA, while I agree with much or most of what they say, there's again this older standing tradition that there are parts of people that are fairly dark and won't go away, and maybe they just get rechanneled when you think you've made a lot of progress. And for people to just be more aware of that is something I would like to see. So we treat animals much, much worse than we used to. We can pat ourselves on the back. There's gay marriage, you know, 13 other good things that we're all familiar with. But at the same time, I don't know, this antiseptic method of drone killings, even if you support it up till now, I think it's quite easy to see at some point it will be very badly abused. Is Rawls' veil of ignorance sort of the, the, the right moral framework or no? No, you just get out of that what you put in. It all has hidden assumptions and it makes it less transparent. Better to just argue for what you think is right. And I think Rawls has steered moral philosophy in the wrong direction for a long time. So I see one of the big problems uh, is, is reconciling uh, egalitarianism and meritocracy. I think people sometimes say that the, the divide is between you know, Edmund Burke or Thomas Paine or between sort of are humans naturally good and institutions make them bad or, or the opposite. But that, that, that's sort of more of a mistake theory view of the world, whereas the, the conflict theory of the view of the world is that people just want different things. Some people are, want radical egalitarianism. Some people want meritocracy. And it seems that as software eats the world, you know, the world increasingly becomes more meritocratic economically. But as social justice is also eating the world, you know, the, the, socially, uh, the world increasingly becomes more egalitarian socially and culturally. Uh, and that these two are, are, are seen as in conflict. That any time, that's why we have Twitter debates that are so harsh around how much you should work because it, there yes. are threats to each other. Do you have the same read? And if, uh, regardless, how do we reconcile these uh, egalitarianism and meritocracy? I would say a few things. First, I'm not really an egalitarian. So if you realize that 40 to 60% of a lot of traits are heritable, people are very different. You're not going to end up equal. You're not going to end up with equal opportunity. There is nonetheless plenty of social injustice that we ought to fix. 
Uh, but I don't believe that the good fixes are going to be very egalitarian. Uh, economic meritocracy will win out through evolutionary processes, in my view. It's already happening. Like the very able people in a large number of countries just earn much more. And the less ambitious people, you know, maybe they're doing okay, but their wages haven't gone up very much. I think that will be harder to change than many people would like to believe. I think the real question is what kind of social innovations can we come up with that will make this new world more bearable, happier, not so psychologically oppressive, different, creating different niches where people can nonetheless gain status. And I think we're doing a lot of that with the Internet. Uh, the fact that this is all debated on Twitter, to me, is a sign like egalitarianism is losing. Like if it's debated on Twitter, if that's the arena, well, it's like the contest is over for better or worse. Right. But at the universities, the you know, elementary schools are are sort of, you know, redefining how they look at math, you know, in terms of oppressor and oppress like they're, they're you know, social justice seems to have institu- institutionalizational institutional support in the way that even religion never had. But I think all that's overrated. I mean, I, I don't go for any of that stuff. But you look at the actual force on the ground. And it's parents wanting to get their smart kids into honors classes. And that's way overweighing all the nonsense you read about by a factor of 50x. In part, you get the nonsense, pause, the meritocratic impulse, you know, give more to those who already have it is so strong. And it's somewhat understandable, the backlash, even though I'm not like on board with it. My read of the, of the progress studies movement of the term progress is that it's wrestling progress, uh, progress away from progressivism, which is which is egalitarian in a similar way that the, liber- the, ter- the liberals wrestled away the term liberal from classical liberalism. How do you respond to that? Uh, that's probably true. It was not certainly my conscious intent, uh, but sort of looking back on it, it, it makes sense. You know, I never thought progressivism of that sort is the future. And I think the future will be fairly chaotic, a lot of incoherence to political views, the political spectrum blurring, actually a funny kind of depolarization, but with higher emotional stakes. Yeah. But today, like the China deal, free trade, immigration, uh, you have people in both parties with all sorts of varying views. In many ways, it's the opposite of polarization. We're just nastier about it all. Uh, the, the state capacity libertarianism. Uh, some people saw that as a, ret- a retreat or surrender for cl- for classical libertarianism. Other people saw it as a, as an evolution in 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 libertarian thinking. Like this is the next step for libertarianism. H- how would you uh, h- how would you respond to both? And what are the implications? Let's say U.S. you know uh, adopted a state liber- you know, capacity libertarian policy. What are the implications there? Well, there's a lot of questions built into what you're asking. Uh, I would say this: if you really want libertarian freedom in the world. You need a state to be pretty strong to protect you, not just in military terms, uh, but to provide some basic public goods and just to stop like even worse people from taking over the state. Right. It needs to be credible. Uh, It needs to be pretty popular. Voters are not always that rational. So to be popular, you actually need to do some things that don't make sense. It needs to, you know, to some extent be and seem inclusive. It's going to be pretty inefficient. And that's the maximum degree of libertarian freedom you're going to get. So I view it as anti-utopian. But, you know, I almost didn't write that blog post. It's gotten tremendous attention. And when I typed that phrase, state capacity libertarianism, part of me just giggled like, oh, this is some kind of funny oxymoron. Why don't I write this down and just drive people crazy? (laughs) 
But in a funny way, it makes sense. And it's kind of stuck. And I even wrote, like, this phrase is so absurd, it will never stick. But it gets at something like you really care about libertarian freedom, but you're not going to get it, you know, in Somalia, not even in Somalia land. And the basic protections you need, some of those have to come from the state. And I actually feel the phrase captures that better than maybe any other single phrase. Yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing the head of the Ayn Rand Institute in, in the next couple of weeks. And I'm curious what you think I, uh, they, uh, Ayn Rand got wrong or, or didn't fully appreciate that I, sh- that I should ask about. Balaji's line about just around what libertarianism got wrong is that um, practically, uh, yeah, what you said, it, it, um, if you don't strike first, someone's going to strike first at you. And that, that's a very Balaji thing to say. Um, but then also that uh, live and let live is not as inspiring as, as win and help win. First, I would say on behalf of Ayn Rand, like I used to read Atlas Shrugged and there there would be these cocktail party scenes of people spouting ridiculous nonsense. And as a kid, I'd roll my eyes a bit like, oh, come on, the, the world isn't that crazy. And we've now arrived at the point where the world is that crazy and crazier. Even like very well-known people will say things that could come out of the mouths of Ayn Rand villains. And she's greatest as a sociologist for kind of portraying, explaining, depicting a dislike of capitalism and where it comes from emotionally. And on that, I think she's brilliant and, and maybe the number one thinker. But look, as a philosopher, I mostly disagree with her. She just asserts things. Her arguments are often weak. I think she's totally wrong about altruism. I think altruism, if done prudentially, is a, is a wonderful, important thing. So most of her philosophy, I don't agree with. I think she's mostly right about capitalism, uh, overly glorifies laissez-faire per se. But again, those cocktail parties, my goodness, that's Twitter. And now we have it captured for all to see. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we've long talked about how to make economic growth more popular. Uh, your, your solution, not to mischaracterize it, is Mormonism, uh, is, is religion. Um, I, uh, I have a couple ideas to run by you and, and curious how you've thought about it further. Uh, one is uh, give equi- make some version of UBI. Uh, or find some way to give people equity in in uh, in Facebook and Google and Apple and, and big companies in a way that they directly see when their when their stock rises they, they make more money in a way that they don't have to pay for it they just sort of get it for free or get it as a result of using the platforms and making the platforms more valuable that's what crypto is trying to do but more directly align incentives and then one other one is uh, like anytime there's a government job it should be you know, sponsored by some com- like someone else paid for that job, and it should be recognized as you know made possible by Apple, made possible by by you know economic growth, and, and some specific people. What do you think about those ideas, or what have you thought about how to make uh, economic growth more more popular? Well, I'm all for experimentation, so you know I don't at all run tech companies. If people want to come along and improve on the Facebook product, you know I say more power to them. And if they can do it through crypto and equity shares, I guess it's not my personal prediction, but I'd love to see more people try. I'd even love to fund some of them. I'm very open in that regard. Uh, But that said, the broader history of consumer-run, consumer-equity-linked firms has not been that positive in the past. There are some co-ops. They work okay. They're not in danger of taking over the world. So it's like not my personal bet. Uh, I guess my personal bet is just hoping we can teach people to be more analytic. And I try to do that through my various outputs. That's a long, hard slog. But if you compare, say, today to many much earlier times in history, the progress we've made, if I may invoke that word again, is pretty phenomenal. So fewer people believe in witches or have 
wacky views the way they used to. I know there's still anti-vaccine hysteria and many other things, but I see a great deal of progress in people being more analytic and there's a Flynn effect. Each generation seems to get smarter. So that's where I'm putting my bets for people appreciating growth, capitalism, wealth, progress more. How does the tech lash end in in your view? Uh, How does it play out? Well, I think the modally most likely scenario is that it's over. It won't go away. Slate just had an article today, the 30 most evil tech companies. And the list was terrible. Uh, I mean, the ratings, to think that, you know, Huawei is only number 11 uh, boggles the mind. But I think that will continue and be clickbait. But in terms of actually doing something, uh, the most likely scenario is there are some antitrust suits, but no big company is split up. And the current big companies we have stay dominant, you know, for some time to come, not forever. But the what you see is what you get scenario would be the single best bet. Uh, if Elizabeth Warren is president, like, do I think she would appoint people to the FTC? You know, the commissioner split would shift. And would some of the big tech companies be broken up? I think a very good chance of that. But that's not where I'd put my money. It's a real risk. Uh, mm. But the market also doesn't think that's the likely scenario. Right. Facebook shares are up quite a bit this last year. Tyler, you and I have discussed the downsides of growth a bit. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the principle of differential technological development, but I'll just spell it out, um, which basically holds like we should slow the development of harmful technologies and their applications while accelerating the development of beneficial technologies. So if a society were to hold this principle as important, might strive to influence the sequence in which technologies were developed. Um, how would you generally respond to this class of concerns about differential development and avoiding increasing existential risk as we focus on growth? Well, the most harmful technologies to date have been advanced weapons technologies, right? And there, I think you have to ask, like, which country are you? So if you're the United States, for all of our flaws, which include some pretty bad foreign policy mistakes in the last 15, 20 years, you know, I still want to bet on us getting the really powerful stuff first. And I would say full steam ahead. I know that's risky uh, and hope to beat out uh, some of the countries I would trust less with those weapons. And I'll, at the same time, I would like to see international conventions that limit many or all of these weapons like hypersonics or very powerful nuclear weapons or, you know, I'm all for arms control, but I don't think we should give up on being number one the extent we can. So, you know, I know you're Canadian, your perspective may be a bit different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, another possible um, area of technological danger, it has not bitten us yet, but would be, say, viruses or pathogens escaped from labs has not yet been something that's killed billions of people. Uh, maybe it will be. I don't know enough about how to limit that danger, but I, I certainly would favor tougher regulations on that where appropriate. Mm. Are there any technologies that you're particularly excited by that you think would be like particularly beneficial? Well, I think cars are, have become underrated, but I think just green energy, you know, 10 years ago, it all looked pretty dismal. And now there's so many things, whether it's carbon sequestration or batteries or solar or forms of geoengineering uh, or maybe even artificial meat like them or small nuclear power stations. They don't seem like jokes anymore. And I'm not saying they're all going to work, electric cars, but they're way ahead of schedule. So that's an area where I'm quite optimistic. 
it seems to me at the present, AI is probably overhyped. It's not even like an actual single thing, but like rhetoric being different from reality. People will just say like, oh, AI is at this level now. Well, of course, 30 years from now, it'll be like a Moore's law for AI. I don't take that for granted. It could from here on out be a somewhat stagnant technology. So, but I'm excited about green energy and uh, cars being much better. So I've recently been reading a lot more science fiction um, as I've had more time over break. Well, I've gone through all of Ken Liu's stuff, um, all of Xi Xin Liu's um, series. Oh, wonderful. Um, and a recommendation from Anton has to like the lightning, which is uh, really fantastic. It's like a mix of fantasy and science fiction. I just um, ordered a copy of that because he, and I think you also recommended it or someone else did. So you yes. shaped my behavior with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. it was excellent. I read the whole three books in like two days or something. It was brilliant. Yeah. I've realized recently that narratives are much more instinctively compelling than graphs. And this was like something that was like intuitively correct yeah. for me, but I didn't really like feel until this year ago after I really started studying the history of science fiction. And it seems like after the golden age um, of sci-fi, artists and writers seem to be like more recently, the new wave is drawn to much more dystopian visions of the future. So for example, Star Trek is going back in time instead of forward. I'm curious what you see the role as of aesthetics in progress studies. Uh, central. You know, a lot of my early books were on the topic of culture and cultural goods and services. So I spent a pretty intense, like 20 year period of my life studying mainly that. And if you look back at something like the Florentine Renaissance, most of all, their ideas of progress were expressed in their art more than in their written works. I think mm -hmm. public intellectuals, many of them already do, but they should track what you might call culture quite closely. Ross Duthit is, is one who does that. I think that's one of his great strengths. And it's become a little underrated because you have a lot of public intellectuals being nerds and maybe they know tech or maybe they know gaming, but they've lost touch with some of the classic humanities fields. And I think that's a loss, their loss. Do you think these positive visions are upstream or downstream of like general cultural attitudes and sentiments? But they're some of the most influential cultural entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, period. If you can get people devoting their mind space to your book, your song, your opera, your whatever, I mean, that's real influence. Never underrate that. And say so the role of opera in history has been quite significant, for instance, to give one example. I don't think it's significant now. Other things are replacing it. Uh, right now, television seems very important. Movies a bit less so than they used to be. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be punk in 2020. Yes. Um, and you've mentioned that the aesthetic of cyberpunk has been exhausted or tired out in some way. Do you see a clearer successor for cyberpunk? Like any aesthetics that you think are likely to take its place? I think a kind of eclecticism based on sampling from the internet that doesn't have a single name is that which is cool. And it's vibrant today. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal what you see people doing and businesses they create or just ideas they have or content they produce. To me, that's way better than cyberpunk. Totally. Tyler, in your podcast with, uh, with Eric Weinstein, you, you had mentioned sort of this, this concept of sort of the feminization of, of the economy, maybe, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened since the, since the seventies, how do you, I guess this is going back to sort of the culture, the wars, how does that relate to, to progress? Well, I guess one is what are the dynamics behind, you know, something in uh, culture getting masculinized or fem feminized and, uh, how does that relate to progress if at all? 
I would say the feminization of all of society. Uh, on that, I think it's a very good thing. It significantly lowers the risk of war. Uh, but that said, there is good evidence women on average are more risk averse. You can debate if that's innate or, you know, a cultural, whether it's acculturated. Uh, but it seems to be true, and it's probably a fairly sticky fact. So uh, there's like more of an endowment effect, perhaps, in a more feminized society. I'd rather have the lower risk of war, uh, but I think it's something we should be aware of and think of ways where we get the rate of innovation back up nonetheless. What is the religious fervor of of the progress uh, st- studies movement? Are, are you uh, less hot on, on religion as, as you were? Um, are, are there the opportunity for... Do you see new religions be, being formed or new religious like communities or practices? Or how, how do you think about that? Well, I think it's a bit like, you know, Harvard and the two major political parties. But I expect a lot of the innovation to come through the big religions we already have. And that's fine. I think we have some pretty amazing ideas in those religions. I don't personally believe in any one of them, but I'm not expecting some new thing started from scratch. There's a big incumbency advantage there. I think, you know, within Christianity, Islam, there's an incredible amount of innovation now. But how do you get people to care about progress in the way that, you know, people care about Christianity or even that Bitcoin, you know, people care about Bitcoin because they get rich? Like, how do you, how do you get people to care in, in an instinctive way? I'm not sure that's possible. Uh, I think you can get people to care about their own lives. That's not so hard. And then to see a connection through being more analytic. You know, again, that's my personal best bet, but I'm not opposed to people trying more unusual tactics. So there's one person we funded through Emergent Ventures. He's writing a book, so trying to sell Christians on the idea of technological progress. And the early work I've seen is quite good. Uh, He's not finished yet. Uh, I hope that has an impact. I just think we need to try lots of things and see what sticks. Yeah. If Jordan Peterson says, clean up, clean up your room, Tyler Cowen says. I don't know. I mean, a lot of creators have very messy rooms. So I think conscientiousness is overrated, actually. Uh, maybe neuroticism underrated. And if you're spending your time cleaning up your room, I mean, that's your privilege. Uh, but it's not going to impress me. <laughs> cool. Um, switching gears a bit. You've asked the public for the most important lessons for Dominic Cummings. Um, What's your current thinking on that? What do you think those are? Cummings wrote this blog post, in essence, asking weirdos to apply to the British civil service. My hope is that was a kind of publicity stunt. And it's very hard to hire people into government through any but the normal, usual legal channels. So uh, I view it as advertising for what they're up to. I think there's already a lot of talent in the British government and a lot of people being attracted the new uh, I'm not really like a fan of Boris Johnson per se, but I think the associated people can be very, very good and they'll do some amazing things. But I don't think you can treat government hiring like startup hiring. It doesn't work. I've lived outside of Washington, D.C. for actually now well over half my life. I've seen people try all kinds of strategies. And I think working through the system is the one that works. And if you look at Britain's biggest... Why doesn't it work? It's hard to beat the system. So look who really changed Britain. I would say it's Margaret Thatcher, whether you agree with it or not. And she worked with establishment people who did things through the system, but had particular ideas. 
And uh, if you don't do it that way, usually the system beats you. And I know that's not the Ayn Rand tale of Howard Rourke. It's not the Silicon Valley, you know, idealization of the startup. And all those are great in their own spheres. But you get to government. You need to respect process. There is something called rule of law. Rule of law also means bureaucratization. It's all a tough slog. Governments have improved themselves. Look at Singapore. Uh, Canadian government is much, much better than it used to be. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, really much better. More talent, uh, more responsive. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was much younger, Canadian government was viewed as like benevolent, but highly inefficient. And now it's viewed as fairly benevolent and relatively efficient. And that was not really done by hiring weirdos per se, though some Canadians are weirdos. So I met one and I don't, you know, have insight into what he really thinks. I hope it was clever advertising and a viral tweet rather than an actual plan. You've spent the last few years um, more deeply understanding, I guess, Canada, but also India and China. What is the biggest lesson in progress that you think the U.S. could learn from India and from China? I think China is wonderful at getting things done quickly and being NIMBY rather than NIMBY. We, if you are more that powerful it can be, I don't think we should go nearly as far as China, where far too often they trample on people's rights. Uh, for progress studies, I think India and healthcare has had some remarkable innovations, like hospitals that just do one thing and at very low prices and super high quality probably higher quality than we do in the U.S. In the area of culture, they've been highly successful, not huge in terms of profit or exports, but in terms of quality of ideas and influence. India, to me, is a true world leader, and the U.S. could learn uh, a great deal, already has learned from India in that regard, but there's much, much more we could do. Like, why does India have the best food in the world? How'd that happen? Not many Americans are thinking about it. Why are Bollywood films so good? They may not be your taste, but it's incredible how successful they are. The level of technical competence in quite a poor country. How did that happen? Uh, Why is Indian classical music one of mankind's most complex, deep, meaningful, aesthetic creations? How did that happen? How do we keep that tradition alive? All of those, to me, seem woefully under-discussed as topics, especially in America, but not only. Somewhere like France is more likely to be aware of them, France or Germany. Or London. We mentioned earlier, you mentioned how you're more on the meritocratic side than the egalitarian side, but do you accept the, the, the premise that sort of a countervailing force to software eating the world is egalitarian eating the world? Basically, the world just always moves more left. And, it, and even if the right is in power, the right is just a less left version of the left, but, but even they are moving, you know, Trump is pro-gay uh, marriage and, and uh, Obama was against it 10 years ago. Just the world always moves more left socially and take any cause, you know, animal rights that doesn't exist yet at scale, but it will at some point as leftism sort of eats the world. Do you accept that or, or dispute it? Uh, I dispute it. If you look back on world history, sometimes the world moves to the left. Very often it moves to the right. I don't have a particular strong prediction about the future, but I see in Europe a lot of the left-wing parties have been shrinking. Now, sometimes you have a Green Party that's growing, uh, but the Social Democrat parties are often just stuck at 20%. Someone did a study, the two leaders of the German party, SPD, one of the two main parties in Germany, you know, for 60 years, they have like a third the number of Twitter followers than I do. That's insane. And I'm not boasting about my own number. It's not that high. 
but they're like at 41,000 and they run one of Germany's supposedly two main parties. So social issues right now, we're moving to the left. No guarantee that will continue. Uh, kind of the mood affiliation of parties that win seems to be moving to the right. Policies highly mixed. Uh, no laws of history of that kind. I would be very skeptical about any kind of claim like that. The claim some people make is that, um, you know, we talked about egalitarianism versus meritocracy. It goes back to Jesus versus Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was uh, misapplied by the Nazis, which lost sort of the moral authority for any of Nietzsche's claims. And Rand sort of revived it later. But uh, obviously, that was narrow in scope. Do you see a, a revival of, of Nietzschean uh, ideals or, or sort of moral authority behind meritocracy emerging? Well, I don't think Nietzschean ideals ever went away. They can be quite nasty. There's plenty of selfish nastiness in the world. Uh, I can't think of any period of time where that's gone down, really. It may be that niceness goes up, but selfish nastiness has never gone down. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't need a revival. You know, there's too much of it on net. You hope you can channel it better. But again, you read people like Harari or have some of the Silicon Valley people are now reading uh, what the, the New Holland book, Dominion. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. People are reading in all kinds of patterns and laws, and essentially none of those are correct. Very hard to forecast. There's so much diversity in our past in terms of trends. Yeah. Uh, foreign policy and, and progress. Uh, my understanding of Thiel's argument is that uh, globalization, you know, trade and immigration promote more horizontal progress um, at the expense of or at the expense of focusing on vertical progress, zero to one innovation. How would you edit that characterization, if not of him, of, of that critique? And uh, h- how do you respond to it or assess what foreign policy leads to progress? Well, it's a big mystery to me why more globalization has not boosted innovation. So if you look at, say, the pharmaceutical pipeline, by the metrics we have, it seems it's been slowing down. Yet the world market is so much bigger than it used to be. Middle class in China, India, so many places. And yet pharmaceutical innovation is slowing down. Uh, I think this is not understood. I'm not sure that's the general tendency. Uh, It seems in the area of the Internet, uh, globalization is helping progress accelerate. Some of that progress is bad, like, say, some forms of surveillance in China. And uh, you need to look at it case by case, but I'm more comfortable with the empirics of particular areas than big claims about globalization, because that concept means many things to many people. And you clearly see conflicting trends in different areas. So one worry about progress is um, hedonic adaptation. For you, is progress mostly about human welfare? Or is there some sort of moral imperative to excel and achieve glory and greatness independent of welfare? Uh, I believe in the latter. I I don't think I can derive it or rationally justify it, but it's good for people to believe in the latter. So if they believe in the latter, let's encourage them. But it might be a Straussian myth, right? Uh, But it's a welfare enhancing myth. So people have to believe in something larger than themselves. So all societies are based on myths. You want to understand your own myths, the myths of the societies you live in or interact with. It's a hard thing to do. We're mostly blinded by these myths. It's one reason why travel is so important, right? Understand better where you're at. What is the main myth that constitutes Silicon Valley? You know, Silicon Valley now has, I think, become more pessimistic and more guarded and more status quo. But until recently, it was a kind of myth of progress and ever ongoing acceleration 
and that tying things together would, would be fairly unproblematic and that it was just full speed ahead on a lot of problems. But they've hit a lot of bumps, like education is one of them. Not many startups in education actually have a great track record. Uh, their political unpopularity, which to me is mostly unjustified, but still I think it's been a wake-up call that they had the wrong worldview. Because at first, probably even still now, they don't quite understand why they're so disliked by political classes, by some of the media. Uh, so Silicon Valley mostly has been about myths. The myth of California, long-standing American myth, just injected directly into all the Silicon Valley myths, mostly for the better, right? Uh, different mm. views of psychedelics and how to expand your mind, the idea that expanding your mind is really possible. Major myth, it seems to me, in many parts of California. When I say myth, I don't mean it's totally untrue, but it nonetheless holds the status of a myth. Hard to think of a more like religious myth-bound place than the Bay Area, to me. Uh, Much more myth-bound than, say, the so-called Christian Bible Belt or something. A, a few questions. One is, uh, instead of underrated, overrated, we'll say a, a person or a couple people, and, and, and you say where you have an interesting disagreement or different <laughs> opinion with them. Okay. And a lot of people you agree with uh, in most things. So uh, I'll, I'll do a, a couple at a time. Uh, pa- Patrick Collison and, and Martin Gurry. Uh, Martin Gurry, I'm a big fan of, and he's recently become a research affiliate at Mercatus. So that's also like putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, Martin is one of the most important thinkers in our current world today. I think maybe he underrates how much the rise of successful autocracy has led to Western politics splintering, and maybe he overrates the rise of the Internet. I would just like to see more data and more tests. But by definition, he's committed to the Gurry hypothesis. I think I mostly agree with him, but I'm not as committed to the Gurry hypothesis as is Gurry. Patrick, you know, I wouldn't speak for him at all. Obviously, he's from Ireland and the European Union, and that shapes his worldview in a whole bunch of ways, whereas I'm from New Jersey. You know, Patrick isn't about a set of views. Patrick is about a way of thinking. So it's hard to name views where you agree or disagree with someone when they're about a way of thinking, which he calls fallibilism. So that's a, a bit of a tough one. And, and, and uh, what is the core insight that, that you that behind Gurry that you find is, is one of the most important thinkers in the world right now? So we have all these protests and all these people disillusioned with politics and these electoral results that either are wacky or just would have seemed wacky to us 10 years ago, like Trump and Brexit. And Martin's basic point is when you can observe your leaders on the Internet and see everything discussed and even see them tweeting, they inevitably decline in status, that too much scrutiny is not good for anyone's reputation, even when they're controlling the message. And by no means are they controlling the message. And uh, they're brought down, you know, to a lower level. And we realize they're mediocrity or they appear mediocre even when they're not. And, you know, their second acts even are kind of eye rolling. And people have a fundamentally different attitude toward politics. I mostly agree with him. Uh, You know, Martin's a Cuban-American who immigrated to this country as a boy. And again, I'm from New Jersey. There are big differences there that are hard to articulate. But his actual worldview is shaped by his being a Cuban-American. And I don't have that background. um, Are you as skeptical on uh, macro as uh, as Arnold Kling is? Or how about Arnold Kling? No, I think Arnold is too skeptical about macroeconomics. Macro is some of the most important economics we have. At least it tells you what not to do. And I think Arnold is too skeptical about the quantity theory of money. 
but on matters economic, I agree with Arnold an awful lot. I don't want to, you know, pick nits. I agree with him way more than I agree with most people on a wide range of issues. How about Eric Weinstein? It's hard for me to even define what Eric's views are. Maybe like Patrick, he's a mode of thought rather than a series of conclusions. Like Patrick will say, he supported Bernie Sanders. I'm not sure if he still does. I certainly would never have supported Bernie Sanders. But I can say that and at the same time still somehow not even be sure that I disagree with Eric. I think uh, I'm a cheerier, steadier person than Eric. And that's the real source, not of disagreement, but of difference in perspective. Very much temperamental. Uh, Eric is much more volatile than I am. What's the difference between the Mark Andreessen uh, either mode or or or, uh, or or school of thought that uh, the, from the Peter Thiel mode or school of thought? Well, I would say it's temperamental. Again, you could write down a list of issues they disagree about, and there's an online debate you can watch and get a good idea what that list is. But that's not the deep understanding. The deep understanding of the difference between those two is temperamental, and they're different types of talents, not the list of where they don't agree. Oh, what are the undervalued benefits of the internet? Are they big? Are they small? Yes, they disagree. That's not the way to, to view it. And in the temperament, one is fundamentally more optimist than the other. Is, is that basically it? While that might be true, I don't think that's the correct way to frame it. Uh, I'm not even sure I figured out the correct way to frame it. But just some very mundane way of how each one like processes his day, I think is very, very different. And I wish I had uh, better words to encapsulate it. Yeah. But it's not just like optimism versus pessimism. Everyone's like both at the same time. Right. Glenn Whale has this idea of increasing returns and that private property needs to be redefined because when my house in San Francisco gets more more valuable, it's not because of work I did as much as the community made it more valuable and thus they should capture some of that value. Are, are you sympathetic to that increasing returns or, or, or expanding the scope of private property um, argument? Well, I think increasing returns are significant in that I agree with them. The question is what to do about it. So I'm more likely to think that so-called ordinary regulation will give us at least a workable solution. He's more likely to think that if we fine-tune collective choice rules along the lines that economic models would suggest, that we'll get better outcomes. Uh, I think simpler political rules tend to be better. They're mainly there to produce legitimacy and give people a stake of being involved. And something like, like quadratic voting is too complicated to do that well. And the fact that like not even a local bridge club has seen fit to introduce quadratic voting, you know, much less like a state, a city, a council. I don't think he takes that seriously enough. So I think he should be a bit more Burkean. But I agree increasing returns are important and they're probably becoming more important, certainly in the tech sector. He, he seems to be very concerned with symmetry of power. How do you sort of narrow what his school of thought is? I'm trying to figure out what... what he have a radical exchange. He's coined his own name for it. So I, I'm happy to call it that. Uh, I like the idea of people being out there with like, here's my view. I think it's very admirable what he's done in that regard. Uh, and I'd like, I'd love to see it tested. And, uh, you know, I even be willing to fund some people like testing it in some way. But, you know, I would say small scale first, like there's plenty of bridge clubs, chess clubs that are run by democracy. Maybe not all the members. It could be a council. It could be a board of directors. But they vote. I'd like to see some stuff done by quadratic voting and these other systems first. See and that it works and it's salient for people. Because I suppose I don't think it is. 
And I, I think Again, he, I, I don't want it to be limited by my vision. Right. He fundamentally believes that Apple or, or Google or whatever company would be more successful if it was more democratic and less, you know, sort of tops down. And uh, he, that seems hard for me to believe or hard for me to believe is self-evident. But again, people can own their data and have tech companies run through blockchains. While I'm skeptical, there's plenty that's happened I would not have believed. And uh, I want to see people try. Yeah. Last I wanted the regulatory barriers to be removed insofar as they exist. Yes. Whether the Last blockchain faces regulatory barriers, we need to think about more and clear those barriers. Last question for me, then Jasmine will close. Uh, the, the Peter Zahan view of the world is that we should, um, in terms of thinking about history's past, uh, sorry, uh, countries past and future, we should evaluate it in context of their demographics, their geography, and um, their energy situations, as opposed to uh, their, or more so than their culture or their type of government. Do you think that's wrong? A lot of it's true, but I think it's a weird Silicon Valley thing to call it like his view. It's like old, old stuff going back to the Renaissance or, or earlier. All of those are interrelated. You can't dismiss culture. He's mostly right in terms of you know, is he insightful approaching concrete problems? I would say yes. Is he worth reading? I would say yes. But there's not like his view in any meaningful way. Tyler, last person to give your opinion on. Tyrone, your evil twin brother. He last appeared on Marginal Revolution 2018. How is he doing? And uh, what is he thinking about? For another visit. I've even wondered if Tyrone shouldn't be allowed to write a whole book someday. But it would be weird you know, you would type Tyler Cowen. It would be like a very nasty, pessimistic book, I think. <laughs> it wouldn't come up when you type my name into Amazon. So it would be problematic in a number of ways. And then there would also be people who think I meant it, which I don't. But again, you like ideas to be out there. Like, what if I wrote the best possible Marxist book? I actually think it'd be pretty good, like better than what the Marxists are doing. So Tyrone... <laughs> should do something like that in some area. But maybe it's like one of the last books I'll write, because after that, like everyone's just confused, your agent like abandons you. <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of big practical problems if you actually work through how these things operate. That's a, that's a perfect place to wrap. Uh, our guest today has been uh, Tyler Cowan, a, a guest host with Jasmine Wing. Uh, Tyler, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks thank so you much, both. Eric. Thanks, Tyler. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 